Matthew chapter 24, verse 29 to 35. Matthew 24, 29 to 35. And I'll read that for us. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory." And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Good morning. Good to be with you today, worshiping together. If we haven't met yet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And before we dive into our uh, passage today, let me say a brief word about the Easter egg hunt that's coming up on Saturday, April 9th. If you have joined Renewal in the past three years or so, you may not realize that this is one of our community outreaches. And by community, I mean both an outreach to our surrounding friends and neighbors, but it's also an outreach that is conducted by the church community as a whole. That means it's not just an activity for our kids. It's also an outreach. I want you to be thinking in those kinds of ways. It's an opportunity to invite our friends and our neighbors so that they can get a chance to know us a little bit better, so that we can get a chance to know them. And David has told you already that to pull this off, that we need volunteers. And he's right. We are, we're understaffed at this point. Uh, so much so that uh, Samantha Kim is hesitant to send out an email to families from outside our community who have joined us in the past. She's hesitant to put this up on Facebook because we're not sure, I should say we are sure, that we don't have enough volunteers to pull this off at this moment. So as a church, what does that mean? It means that we're going to miss out because this is an opportunity for us as a church together to bond together as we reach out together in order to serve our community. Volunteering does not have to absorb the entire time. If you are already planning to come, parents, you don't have to think like, okay, I have to volunteer for the entire uh, couple hours. Instead, just volunteer for a little portion, and even that would be really, really helpful to us. It's incredibly well organized. You don't have to do any of the organization. Sam and her team have done an outstanding job. We simply need people at this point to participate. You don't even have to remember to do this later today. Because after the service at the welcoming table, there will be a device you can sign up uh, here before you leave. So we're inviting you. Come out to enjoy, for you and your kids. Come out to meet people along with their kids. And sign up, please, to help. Okay, back to our passage for today. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in chapter 24 of Matthew. It's a series where Jesus tells his disciples 
what they can expect life to be like for them before he comes back to this earth. And so far, what he said is really sobering. Basically, this is the short version, he said, here's your life, it's pretty ugly. Adopt my mission on this earth. Bring people the message that God has come to rescue them. And, and I should pause here and, and point out, he's not talking to just a, a couple super disciples. He's talking to all of us. He's talking to ordinary disciples. He got a little hint of that last week when he said, here's what some of those ordinary disciples are going to be doing when Jerusalem is raised to the ground. Some of them are going to be what? They're going to be on their rooftops, just doing ordinary daily life. Some of them are going to be out in the fields. They are going to be ordinary disciples doing ordinary stuff while embracing Christ's mission of loving God and loving people. Ordinary people doing things under extraordinary conditions. Because Jesus goes on, he says, Adopt my mission and you will be hated, persecuted, maybe killed, and you will do so in a world of natural and geopolitical disasters. That's your future. And you hear that and you think, wow, really? <laughs> I'm supposed to get excited about that? A true confession. I have been so tempted each week to sort of, uh, after the passage is read, to, to you know, try to make light of it a little bit, just to relieve the tension, sort of channel my inner Ron Weasley and come up and say something like, well, that's cheerful. What Jesus says is so counter to what we regularly hear in our worlds. And it's counter to what we hear in the church. Another brief aside. Do you have any idea how hard it is to choose a song that lets us respond to these chapter 24 messages at the end of each service? People don't write songs along these themes. They don't write songs about living in the last days. The church doesn't sing songs along these themes. That means, on a regular basis, we are not discipling ourselves weekly into this mindset. We were struggling to find a song a couple weeks back, and Sam Huang, one of our elders, he oversees the praise portion of the service, told me that he went through the entire catalog of songs that we use here at Renewal. And he says, Bill, there is not one song there that captures the kinds of things that Jesus is talking about in this chapter. Let that sink in. There is not one song that we can point to to help you process what Jesus says you should expect your entire life to be. We can find songs that talk about hardships. We can find songs that talk about how great God is. We can find a few songs that talk about reaching out in love. But we cannot find a song that says, in the face of hardships, Given how great God is and how much he loves us, it is a joy and privilege to pour out our lives, loving and serving others, even if they hate us. We can't find one song like that. And we can't blame our secular society for making what Jesus says hard to hear. It's our Americanized, westernized Christianity that makes him hard to hear. See, what do we long for as Western Christians? We want things that are big, that are popular, that are certain. We want things that are well-attended, well-spoken of, that are successful, by which we typically mean numbers. So whatever it is that we're doing, we want it to be bigger. We want to have more people this year 
than we had last year. And Jesus doesn't promise that. What has he promised his disciples? He's promised that we will be hated while we live in a world that is out of our control. He promises, guarantees, that we will be unpopular and that we will live our lives in an uncertain world. And we, ordinary people, are supposed to respond to this unpredictable, antagonistic world in extraordinary ways, in ways of love and service and moving out, caring about the very people who don't like us very much. What's that mean? It means that we can't rely on outcomes to motivate us. We can't rely on producing certain results, on having large, well-received ministries. And yet, man, as Westerners, that's what we want. We are, if anything, incredibly pragmatic. And so we look into the future, and if we don't see a pretty certain result, we tend to hang back. You see this in lots of areas of life. Why don't you invest in the stock market when it's volatile? It seems risky, uncertain. You're not sure you'll get a good return on your investment. You might lose money. What keeps you from asking someone out on a date? It seems risky and uncertain when you pull back. You're not sure that they'll say yes. You might get rejected. Why would you not say something to your friend when they're, what they're doing is bad for them? It seems risky, uncertain. You're not sure you'll still be friends. You've all done this, right? I, I have. It's how pragmatists live. We look down the road and assess the chance of having a good outcome. And if that outcome is low, it's easy to take a pass. We choose not to act in the present because we are of how we are thinking about the future. But we then bring that mindset into the church and into the mission that God has given us. And we assess, we ask ourselves, does it seem as if there's a good chance that my friend or relative might be interested in accepting and embracing the gospel, embracing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to open the door to having a relationship with God, does it seem likely that they would want that? And if the chance seems low, what do we do? We take a pass. We don't act now based on what we think their response might be in the future. And to pragmatic, modern disciples who love our churches and church programs to be big and popular and certain, Jesus comes along and he says, expect to be hated in a chaotic, out-of-control world. Now, who's in? That's a hard sell. Which means he's going to have to give us some pretty big reasons for saying, that sounds so wonderful and so compelling. I don't want to miss out. I want in on that. In today's passage, he gives you three reasons. Reasons that will take you from sitting back, acting pragmatically, to wanting with all your heart to be involved in what he's doing. Three reasons today. First, he gives you certainty that he himself is coming soon. Second, he gives you certainty that he will gather you to himself. And third, he gives you certainty that he will establish God's rule over all this earth. Certainty that he's coming soon, that he will gather you to himself, and that he will establish God's rule over all the earth. Point one, Jesus gives you certainty that he's coming soon. Look at verse 32. 
He says, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender, puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near, he being the Son of Man, being Jesus, that he is near at the very gates. Jesus says, look at what's going on around you, and it will tell you something about the future. When the fig tree puts out its leaves, you know that the harshness of winter is over, that summer is coming. Do you have something like that in your life? Something that when it happens in the present tells you what the future is going to be? Here's one from my life. Sally, my wife, loves to bake. She doesn't bake much, however, in the summer when it's hot. So after a long, hot summer of not baking without fail, when the first cool wet weather of late September, early October hits, I know something. I know that when the cool weather hits, that baking season is near, even at the very gates. I also know that by the end of baking season, I will probably have added five pounds. Jesus says that when you see all this, all of the things that we've studied over the last three weeks, the wars, the rumors, the disasters, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Judea, things that all take place, verse 34, while that generation of disciples are still alive, things that did take place by A.D. 70, when you see these things all happen, then you know that that birth that he referred to back in verse 8, that coming of the new creation, you know that it's just right about to happen. Because the very next event in redemptive history is that Jesus comes back. These things tell you there isn't anything left that has to happen before he comes back. They tell you that this is absolutely certain. Now let me say just a word about the organization of today's message. You'll see that I'm approaching this passage backwards. I'm going from the latter verses to the earlier ones. And I'm doing that because of the inherent skepticism of our age. Jesus here is speaking about the future, about things that have not happened yet. So if we don't think that he has any ability to accurately predict the future, <laughs> it really doesn't matter what he says. It's not going to give us any more certainty than what anyone else thinks the future might be. So we're starting first with the thing that all of the rest of our certainty hangs on on Jesus himself, and on Jesus predicting his return. And the question that that raises is, why would you then believe him when he says he's coming back? Why would you adjust your life so that his future coming back changes how you live in the moment? It's a question that goes to the heart of what you actually think of Jesus as a person. See, if you're going to modify what you do based on who he is, it's because you think that he's trustworthy. And in that sense, it, that's true of all your relationships. You base your, relation, your actions and your decisions in a relationship on the other person, on what you think of them as a person, on what they're like, on, on what their, their character tells you about what they might probably do in the future. Anyone who's ever gotten married knows this. No one who dates someone says, okay, so... I expect, based on what I've already experienced of this person, that things are just not going to work out for us 20 years from now, so let's go ahead and get married. Nobody thinks like that who takes marriage seriously. If you don't think that you're going to last for 20 years, you don't get married. 
But if you think, yeah, you know what, this makes sense. From what I've seen of him or her and how we relate, I think this can work. I think it will work. And so, yes, let's get married. In other words, you make decisions about today when it involves other people based on how trustworthy you think that person is. And then you plan things out in the future based on your experience of that individual. So when Jesus talks about the future and when he invites us to alter our lives accordingly, we have to ask, is he trustworthy? Is there evidence in his life, not outside of his life? We're not trying to evaluate him from outside, as if something greater sits over top of him and that's our authority, something that gives us a way of assessing him. Instead, we're taking him seriously when he says he's the ultimate authority over all of life. And then we're asking, is there evidence from within his life that gives us confidence to take him seriously? And let me offer you two things that say, yes, you can trust him. You can trust what he says about the future. You can be certain of it. And you should then adjust your life accordingly. What are those two things? First, ask yourself what his track record is in predicting the future of the world. See, lots of people predict the future. Most of them are wrong. I was reading something by D.A. Carson the other day where he talks about a book written back in 1993. It's by Francis Fukuyama called The End of History and the Last Man. If you Google this, you'll discover it was a fairly influential uh, book of its day. It's Fukuyama's prediction that following the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, that there would be no more major conflicts among nations. Sure, there'd be scattered skirmishes, localized conflicts, but there would be no more major conflicts like we had seen in the earlier part of the 1900s because liberal democ de democracy and free marketal capitalism had clearly won out over communism and they would continue into the future to win. In other words, his thesis is, World peace would come, not by the gospel of Jesus Christ transforming individuals who then impact and transform their communities, but world peace would come by the transforming power of political and economic forces. It was an attempt to tell the future. It's a theory. But as you look at the data, you realize the theory doesn't account for the data, the data that we've since observed that tells us that international conflicts have not ended. Now, Jesus also predicts the future. We've seen that he predicts that wars and rumors and disasters will keep taking place, and that prediction does make sense of the data. It's held up for 2,000 years. It's a general prediction of what life will be like for humanity that's accurate. It's a general prediction. Jesus also gives a specific prediction that within 40 years, the temple and Judea would be completely destroyed, which they were. So not only is his general prediction true, but his specific one is as well. Why would you trust Jesus to tell you the future about you? First, because of his track record in telling you about the world's future. But second, you trust him with your future because he got his own future right. He predicted over and over and over that he had to be betrayed, suffer, then be killed, and rise after three days. 
we just in the winter went through several chapters in Mark where he said those things at least three times. And as we've studied the book of Mark, we've realized that Mark does not waste words. His book is very fast-paced. So if he tells you the same thing repeatedly, you realize Jesus probably said this a whole lot more than simply three times. The more that you think about it, the more you realize actually that's true, especially when you listen to his enemies. After Jesus died and was put in a tomb, the chief priests and Pharisees came to Pilate, the governor, and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. And then they want Pilate to seal the tomb so that nobody can steal the body and make it look like he rose when he didn't. Now think about that for a moment. His enemies, those who heard him, but who were not on the inside of his conversations, who were not there when he took the disciples aside, his enemies knew that he said he would rise. What does that tell you? It tells you this was something he said all the time. It wasn't something he said quietly to just a handful of people. It was widely known. This is the crux of whether or not you can trust him. Did he accurately predict his own future? Did he get both his death and his resurrection correct? If he did not, you can put him in the same category as Fukuyama, someone who's taking an interesting stab at the future, but who ultimately has no more insight than anyone else. But if Jesus did get his future right, then you have to take everything seriously that he said about your future as well. And this is part of why we talk so much at Renewal Mainline about whether or not Jesus' resurrection really happened. It's why I press you to take seriously things like if the Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities got together to make as certain as they could that no one could steal the body, they sealed the tomb, they posted a trained, experienced guard on it, and his body was missing anyhow. And then no one was ever able to produce a body to dispute the disciples who said they'd seen him live again. If that's the case, then someone with integrity, intellectual integrity, has to conclude he saw his future accurately. It's why I press you to take seriously that the disciples never recanted never said that they lied about seeing him alive, even though it cost most of them their lives to say that. You have to take seriously that if all of this is true, Jesus did what he said he would, that he not only was killed, but that he rose again from the dead, that he saw the future correctly. And so when he says he's coming again, you can bet your life on it. You should bet your life on it. You should be certain of it. You should be certain that it could happen at any moment because all of the preliminary events have taken place. That's point one. Jesus will absolutely come back. Which means then that we should live now making decisions based on what we know is going to happen. And so we need to know not only that he's coming back, but why he's coming back. You need to know what he will do and how that impacts what you and I do. So one of the things he's coming back for, point two, is to look for his people. Verse 31. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. When he comes back, he'll send out his angels to gather up his people. And there's going to be this loud trumpet call. 
That's a reference that takes you all the way back into the Old Testament to the time when God brought his people out of Egypt. They traveled through the wilderness to Mount Sinai to meet with him. They had three days to get ready. And on the morning of the third day, God's presence descended onto the mountain in this thick cloud and fire. There was thunder, lightning. It was a terrifying experience for the people. And there was this very loud trumpet blast. It was a blast that didn't just sound once and then died away. But it was a trumpet that got louder and louder and louder. It was an overwhelming experience. The people could hardly stand it. Moses himself said, I I'm trembling with fear. Now what's God doing with that trumpet? He's calling his people. Summoning them to himself. And it was a summons that was irresistible. As overwhelming as it was to be in his presence, the people could not refuse that call to come to him. The call got louder and louder and louder. They were compelled to come, called to come. And frankly, in American Christianity, we've lost some of that sense of God's command to come. The sense that God calls and his people come, that we have to come. And it actually hurts us that we don't have that sense that certainty that in our relationship with God, he calls us irresistibly to himself. See, we've tended to put the emphasis on ourselves, on making a decision for Jesus, on deciding to follow him. And that is true. There is that need to decide to follow him. But we put such an emphasis on our choice that we think of following Jesus as an option, as one option among many. Something that's kind of like being part of a voluntary organization. Something that you do with some extra time that you have left over. By the way, that's exactly how the larger world thinks of the people of God as well. There's an experiment that was done at the University of Essex. It was just published recently in the Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin. The researchers asked people about their activities. And they asked them about church going, but they put church going in the category of a hobby. It's a hobby. And they put church going right up there with bird watching and watching TV. Now think about it. If that's the way the larger world that you and I live in thinks of church, that this is a hobby, a voluntary association, if that's our mindset, is it any wonder that we tend to treat Sunday morning casually? That we wander in? That we're not super concerned if we're, you know, a couple minutes late. It's not a big deal. That we are more concerned with being on time for work, more concerned with meeting with our boss on time, than we are for being on time to meet with God. Is it any wonder that if we miss the call to worship, it's not really that big a deal because, you know, that's just introduction. At the base of Mount Sinai, the people knew that the call to meet with God was not optional. It was not a warm-up that they could afford to miss. If you were wakened up this morning, not by your alarm clock, but by a trumpet, one that didn't sound and stop, but that got louder and louder until you were here at church, you would have a very different experience this morning. A sense that you were summoned by God. 
that summons actually does happen, and it happens much more powerfully than by any trumpet. It happens by the Spirit of God inside of you. You know that you are to be here with God and with his people. That summons now is quiet, but it won't be when he returns. On that day, it will be obvious and irresistible, just as it was at Mount Sinai. It will accompany his angels, who will then gather up his people. And they will gather them from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. They will not miss a single person anywhere. God will summon and gather his people, making sure that every single one who is his is with him. That is as certain as is his coming. Now, what does that mean for you? It means that you put greater confidence in God's ability to gather those who are his than in your ability to be gathered. Let me say that again. You put greater confidence in God's ability to gather those who are his than you put in your ability to be gathered. What do I mean by that? Some of us worry. We see our sins, our repeated sins. We see how far short we fall. We see how casually we take God, and we think to ourselves, man, I wouldn't put up with me. I can't imagine that he does. I know he's more patient than I am, but nobody can be that patient. In other words, we have more confidence, more certainty in our ability to ruin our relationship with God than we have in God's ability to build and maintain a relationship with us. I don't know if you've had one of these times, a time where you just saw your failures so big that, that you couldn't even stand the thought of praying. You were sure that God had to be disappointed with you. What do you fall back on in those moments when you can't even think to pray? You have to fall back on the certainty that what he's done is far more than anything that you've ever done. And so you go back to the cross. Maybe you go back to an odd passage like 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Something that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you let your mind hang out there on what it means that God is just, that he is righteous, that he upholds justice by forgiving our sins. You tease out that if what Jesus did on the cross was to pay for your sins, then they're what? They are paid for. That there is no way that God would ever try to make you pay for them, because if he did, that would make him unjust. It would be a gross miscarriage of justice to make someone pay for something that has already been paid for. And so you realize that in that moment, when you confess your sins, what are you doing? You are expressing faith, even though if it's very small and even if it's feeble. But you're saying, Jesus, I hate what I've done. I know it's no good. I confess it to you because you've said that you would pay for what I've done. And in that moment of confession, what are you doing? You're putting your confidence in what he has done to rescue you. And you're doing, putting more confidence there than you are in what you have done to ruin you. And if you have that kind of faith, again, faith that doesn't have to be big, just small enough to say to Jesus, I can't fix this. But you said that you could. If you have that kind of faith, you can be absolutely sure that he will not forget you. 
that you won't be left out because you were tucked away under one of the corners of heaven, far out on the edge, that he will come looking for you when he gathers his people, that he is just and faithful to forgive you and therefore just and faithful to summon you. And you will be so glad in that moment. Glad because he's not gathering his people to get anything out of them. Not looking for workers to force into doing things that they're going to hate doing. Not looking to feel powerful by lording it over smaller people. He's gathering you, summoning you for your good. So you won't miss out on this amazing world that he's about to birth. It's point two. He will not forget you. He will come looking for you. Nothing will get in the way of his gathering you to himself. And because he's guaranteed that future gathering for you, take that future summons seriously now. Answer it now. Come to him without being forced to do so. Come to him willingly. Feel that call inside from his spirit and respond to him. And when you do that now, you will feel his embrace to be that much sweeter to you. Which leads us then to point three. You can be certain that Jesus will rule over everything in this world. Verse 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now we've talked before about how Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man. And how that's a reference back to chapter 7 in the book of Daniel. And there you learn that when one like a son of man, someone human, is brought into God's presence, that that one is given authority, glory, power over all the nations of the earth, and that he is given an eternal reign and a kingdom that is never destroyed. Here in Matthew 24, Jesus doesn't say that the son of man goes to God to get all of those things. But that he goes where? He goes to the earth. Which means he's coming from God. From God's presence. That he's already been given authority to rule over the world. And that what he's doing now is he is invoking that right to rule. And that nothing is going to derail his coming. Nothing's going to oppose him. Nothing's going to hinder him, stop him. Nothing's going to even slow him down. He will superintend the events of human history to bring them to the point where he will come in glory. So the first time he came humbly to save his people. This next time, he comes in glory with power to rule. And everyone's going to be aware of him. They will see him coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And it's going to be clear, nothing's going to get in the way. That the world, when he comes, will be exactly what he wants it to be. Which means what? His people are looking forward to this day. He's come to gather them and then establish the reign and the rule of God over this earth, and his people will be absolutely thrilled, especially those who have been persecuted, overwhelmed by living here because they've identified with him. But not everybody's going to be thrilled. Verse 30. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. Not everyone's going to want this to happen. Many will not want him to be in charge. They'll mourn because they realize that the way things were is now over. Now notice something. We say it here at Renewal a lot. 
that eternity is populated by people from every tribe and tongue and nation, that it's filled with beautiful diversity, diversity that God has built into each and every single one of his people. But notice here that the opposite is also true, that those who mourn, those who want nothing to do with Jesus' appearing, are from all the tribes of the earth, that they are also from every tribe and tongue and nation, and yet something binds them together. There is unity in their diversity. And the unity is that they are grieved by the appearance of the Son of Man. They are grieved by the Son of God. There is a deeper common core among them that holds them together. They are opposed to God. And that unity transcends their diversity. And it tells you that the most important thing about them the most foundational identity that they have is that seeing God come is a source of grief. They don't want him. Now notice here how Jesus talks about people. On the one hand, he talks about all the tribes of the earth, all the diverse people drawn together because of one thing, their hatred of God. While on the other hand, he simply talks, verse 31, about God's elect, his people whom he has chosen. He lumps all of us together in that single phrase, the elect. In this passage, he doesn't even nod at our diversity. What's that mean? For all of our deep differences, like all the tribes of the earth, there's a fundamental identity that we all share with each other, an identity that is different from the rest of the earth. It's that God has called us to himself that we are his. This is your primary identity. Doesn't mean that the other dimensions of you are unimportant. It means that this one is more foundational. It's below all of the other ways that you see yourself. This is what informs you and informs how you see all the other dimensions of yourself. And so you can't hang on to any of those more fiercely than you hang on to this one. And what I'm saying right now runs counter to our present world. You know this. We live in a world that says we are more uniquely ourselves because of our differences. More ourselves than we are our true selves by what unifies us. And God's people have a different way of thinking about differences. Differences are important, but they are not what is most defining about us. So if you find yourself thinking about your identity as being more based on whether you are male or female, Asian, Hispanic, black, Indian, white, Democrat or Republican, blue-collar or white-collar, if those differences are more important to you, you're missing what Jesus sums up with this one word, the elect, his people, those who bring our differences to him and our differences to each other, what we are what? We're excited at his appearing rather than those who are upset at his appearing. Now, why does Jesus want you to know that he will absolutely, without doubt, establish God's authority over this world? It's so that you know that nothing that happens to you today, being persecuted for his sake, caught up in a national or natural disaster, nothing will hinder his plans for this world. And by extension, that means that nothing will hinder his plans for you. And that's what empowers you to act. Even when you're not sure, pragmatically, of the immediate outcome. 
But if you don't know that he ends up with a good world, if you're not certain that he does, if you don't live with that kind of a mindset, you're going to be tempted. Tempted to insulate yourself from how hard it is to live in this world. The one that Jesus describes as antagonistic and violent. And you will do things then that are counter to what Jesus is doing in his kingdom. I read this past week of a woman on TikTok. She gets unwanted attention from men. They ask her for her phone number. And her solution is to creep them out. To, quote, make sure they regret ever thinking of talking to me, unquote. And so she, with a very perfectly straight, deadpan face, says things to guys like, I like to dig up and eat dead things. And men, understandably, what? They step back away from her. Now, is that effective? I'm sure it ends the, I hope it ends the attention. Does it create a better world? A world in which men and women respect each other, respect each other's boundaries. Does it create a world in which people feel less afraid of each other? Or does it create a world in which they feel more afraid of each other? And I can hear someone right now saying, but that's not her job to think about how someone else feels. Here's another place where the kingdom of God is in tension with our society and with how our society thinks. Because Jesus says that is the job of his people. That in the face of hatred and persecution, that like Elizabeth Elliot, Rachel Saint, that we act for the sake of others, we don't necessarily give them our phone numbers, but we act for the good of others. And we do so because we have been on the receiving end of God acting for our good when we hated him and hated his agenda. What gives you then the power to do that? The power to have an extraordinary response, one that radically seeks the good of other people. What empowers you to do that? You stop looking for those guaranteed outcomes in the short run. And you stop looking for them because you are confident in what he has guaranteed in the long run. That nothing will keep his reign and his rule from happening. And I can imagine another objection. Someone saying, well, if he's definitely going to bring his kingdom, it doesn't matter what I do. And that's true for his kingdom. It's not true for you. It does matter what you do. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, if you build your life on a foundation other than the gospel, if you do things that have nothing to do with God and his kingdom, then when he comes, all those things will just burn up. You'll suffer loss. You'll be saved, but you'll have nothing to show for it. You will have sidelined yourself, put yourself on the bench. You won't have had a life that counts. Knowing that Jesus will come back to establish his kingdom motivates and empowers you to serve. It doesn't motivate you to sit back. And so you do things now that are in line with his kingdom, and you do them without worrying about what the outcome's going to be. You leave the results to him. So go home today and tell your kids about God. Try to help them see how he is connected to literally every single thing about life. Can you make them love him for it? No, that's outside your job description. But you can make them aware of him. You do what he tells you, and you leave the results to him. Or go home 
and try to reestablish a devotional time or try to establish a devotional time with your spouse. Doesn't matter how many times you have failed. Just pick up a Lenten devotional right now anyway. Doesn't matter how many times you have not been able to continue being in Scripture, how many times you've not been able to pray together with your spouse or with a roommate. You try again. You ask someone, would you like to, to pray with me? Can we read Scripture together, read a devotional together? You can't make them do that, but you can invite them. You do what's right in God's eyes, and you leave the results to him. Or you think about how you can invest yourself in the life of the people you live with. How you can love them like God loves them. You pour yourself out for them. You give them a taste of what it's like to be loved by him. Can you make them receive that love from you? Can you make them love you in return? Of course not. You do what God gives you the strength to do, and you leave the results to him. You take a chance with the people around you. You do little things. You pray before lunch at work. You take a risk and you tell your coworker what you really do on a weekend. That you go to church, that it's not a hobby, because a relationship with God is not something that you manage on the side. You invite your neighbor to the egg hunt. You live your life faithfully before people. People who might laugh at you, who might not invite you to the next party at work. You live faithfully and you leave the results to God. If you know that Jesus is coming to establish his kingdom, you can live in kingdom ways now without worrying about the results. Because the results, his kingdom coming, are up to him, not up to you. And he guarantees results that, what, that you will be eternally happy with when he comes. Jesus is sending his people, sending you, me, out into a broken, sinful world that's going to hate and hurt you. And he calls you to a much bigger mission than simply to protect yourself or try to go under the radar. Unless you think that it's so that he can get something out of it for himself, you know, use you to accomplish what he wants. Let's ask one last question today, briefly. Who benefits? Who benefits from this world that he says is absolutely certain? tells you the future to motivate you in a certain direction. So it's valid to ask who gets the most out of that future. Because if he gets the most out of it, it seems a little self-serving to say. So ask, what's he get out of it? He tells you that he will appear with power and great glory. But if you think about it, he already had power and great glory with the Father before time began. That's not anything new. He tells you that when he appears, he will rule over the earth, but he already did that before ever, any human ever walked on the planet. He tells you that when he appears, he's going to send out his angels. He's the Lord of hosts. He's always commanded them, can send them out and have them do whatever he wants. When he appears, it will be obvious, verse 35, that his words are enduring, much more so than heaven and earth, but his words have always been enduring. They don't need his appearing to prove it. His appearing does not add a single benefit to him except one. And that is that he now gathers his people to himself. That he gathers you to himself. That he gives you a future worth having with himself. He's a God who will not quit pursuing his people, even when we have no confidence in him, even when we treat him casually. And he doesn't do it to fill himself up. 
out of a sense of being needy. If he was a needy God, then his pursuit would be a problem. Because it means then that he's pursuing us to make up for something that's missing inside of him. It means that he would create relationships that are enmeshed, dysfunctional. That he would try to live off of us or through us. But he doesn't need to do any of that. Because he's relationally filled up. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, endlessly loving each other. There are no needs within our God. Which means that his pursuit of us is not for his benefit. It's for ours. And that means that he tells you what the future will be for your sake, not his. It's to help you live confidently in the present, regardless of what happens to you now, because you know that he's bringing a future that is so good and so great for you and him, the rest of his people, that you want to make sure that you are all in now, like you'll be all in later. Lord God, thank you that you are so much better than we could ever imagine, so much more powerful, so much more enduring, and so much more invested in us than we are invested in us. Lord, you have better plans and better purposes for us than we have for ourselves. Give us that confidence today, Lord, that you will not overlook us, that you will come to gather us, that you will reign and rule over this whole earth, Lord, and that we will get to be there with you enjoying you for eternity. Lord, release us then now, in this moment, to thank you and praise you with our words. In Jesus' name, amen.